This morning we are in uh, our final story of a series that we've been doing called Seven Stories. And so this is the seventh story today. And so essentially uh, what we've been doing is we've been unpacking what Jesus or people have called parables. And so the term parable, para means alongside, balo means to throw, parable. And so it's essentially where Jesus would take a story and he would throw it alongside something else in order to bring clarity to that other thing. And what was interesting is, I think everybody in here probably enjoys stories. My dad uh, started reading uh, The Hobbit when I was just a little bitty guy. I think I was probably five and my sister was eight. And then he proceeded to read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy to us over the course of a very long period of time. And so I think probably that's true for most of us in this room, that we're moved by stories. In fact, part of the reason that great teachers always use stories is because stories have a way of sort of developing or establishing a beachhead in our minds and our thinking through the back door of our hearts. And so Jesus was constantly telling these stories, these parables, and what would happen is people would get invested, like we all do with a movie or a good book. You get involved in the story, and what they didn't realize is that a lot of the times the the punchline or the ending of the story was actually something that he wanted them to gather, that he wanted them to learn. Sometimes it was a rebuke. And so it was a wonderful way of teaching that Jesus used in order to capture people's hearts through the back door uh, of their minds. So this morning, the, the, uh, the story we're looking at is a story that we have probably, or most of you are familiar with, if you've heard of it. It's uh, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the unmerciful servant. And uh, it's taking a very familiar concept uh, of debt, something that we're very, very familiar with in America, whether that's credit card debt or a car debt or educational debt. We understand that pretty well, but then Jesus links it with something that we don't understand quite as well, which is forgiveness. Now, before we read and jump into this parable today, I want to look or draw your attention to the immediate context. One of the things that we've been saying about Scripture, parables in particular, is that context is actually part of text. In other words, in order for you to understand the text, in this case today, Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 35, you have to understand the surrounding context. And so I'm going to read a couple of uh, bits and pieces of the surrounding context. Just before this, in verse 6, Jesus talks about the gravity, the seriousness of causing someone else to sin. He says this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words, Jesus takes causing someone else to sin very, very seriously. And what we see about Jesus' heart here is he desires to protect people from the harmfulness and the destruction of sin. He then goes on to say in verse 9, he focuses on the gravity, not of uh, causing someone to sin, but the gravity of our own sin and the radical lengths to which we should go in order to avoid or get rid of or eradicate sin. In verse 9, he says this, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now he is, just letting you know, speaking symbolically and metaphorically there. So if next week some people come in with eye patches, I just want to let you know that I told you that's largely metaphorical or symbolic. But nevertheless, what Jesus is doing there is he's trying to teach us about how important it is for us to avoid and eradicate sin from our lives. He then goes on in verse 15 to talk about how we should respond when somebody sins against us. And so he says this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. In other words, don't gossip, 
Don't slander. If somebody sins against you, go talk to them about it, right? Something that we all need to learn how to do. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And so Jesus gives us a blueprint for how to handle it when somebody else sins against us. Now, each of these sections where Jesus teaches about sin precedes this parable today, the parable of the unmerciful servant. But before we jump in and read it, let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have us here. And Father, I thank you that your desire for us is to flourish, to become fully human, um, to submit ourselves to you as our king. And so, Father, I pray that that would occur today. Father, I pray that we would submit our hearts and our minds and our bodies to you and to your lordship. And I pray that as we do so, um, that you would not only cause us to flourish individually, but that you would cause our families um, and our relationships and even Rome, Georgia, to flourish as we submit to you as our Father, our God, and our King. We pray all these things today in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how many times do I have to forgive somebody when they sin against me? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. We'll unpack that in a minute. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So pretty, pretty serious teaching here on forgiveness and being forgiven. What is Jesus trying to teach us in the story of the unmerciful servant? Well, I think one of the first things we see is that when it comes to forgiveness, we always want to know the maximum amount that is required of us. Like, all right, Peter's like, how much do I have to, to forgive? And so in verse 21, we see, then Peter came up to Jesus after all these teachings about forgiveness and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And his guess is up to seven times. Peter undoubtedly, undoubtedly knew that Jesus' standards for righteousness would exceed both his and the Pharisees. And so he actually raised the bar in his estimate just a bit. The Mishnah, which is a collection of uh, rabbis' interpretation of the Old Testament law, taught that Jews were required to forgive someone three times 
But the fourth time, they weren't required to offer forgiveness anymore to the unforgiving party. So the answer for the rabbis was three times is how often you have to forgive. So Peter's guess actually more than doubles the number of times that a sinner is to be forgiven according to the rabbis. But what we'll see here in a moment is that Peter's guess, even though it doubled it and he said seven, it still fell woefully short of what was actually required of him according to Jesus. And what we can see here is our tendency to want to know just how much is required of us because apart from God and apart from his work in our heart, we don't want to forgive, we actually want to judge, right? Let's just be honest. When somebody sins against us, when somebody offends us, when somebody hurts us, we, it's not our natural inclination to want to forgive them. It's our natural inclination to want to punish them, right? And so the question in our heads and on Peter's lips reveals to us the reality of our own hearts. There's a Canadian psychologist named Lynette Hoy who has written uh, extensively on forgiveness and on anger, all these issues. She wrote an article called, Why Is It So Hard to Forgive? I'm going to read it. It's a bit long, but I think it's helpful. So here's what she has to say. Human behavior suggests that people are hardwired to retaliate when they have been hurt by another person. Any of you who have children have witnessed this occur about 723 times before your child is in third grade. Our pride or self-esteem is injured. Our expectations or dreams are disappointed. We lose something very valuable to us, and we want recompense for the damages, right? But there are other resistances which block our motivation to forgive. Automatic thoughts or beliefs impede us from forgiving others. We tell ourselves, I won't forgive because he or she never accepts responsibility for what he or she does. I'm not going to forgive. Or I would be a hypocrite if I forgave because I do not feel like forgiving. My guess is one or two of you have used that internal argument. Or forgiving is only for weak people, right? All sorts of excuses why we don't forgive. Explanations, she goes on to say, for behavior can also get in the way. When someone hurts us or lets us down, we tend to assign internal causes for the behavior of others. In other words, we create a narrative about what their motivations were or are. We argue that it is based on personality or character traits. We tell ourselves, he's just so forgetful or careless, or she doesn't appreciate me, or she did that purposefully. We judge them harshly. She goes on in the article to talk about how we let ourselves off the hook, but we don't extend that same mercy and grace to the offending parties that have wounded us. She goes on to say, it's impossible to fully know why a person acted the way that they did. The goal is to promote empathy and forgiveness and to look more realistically at the hurtful events from their point of view. In other words, what's true about what happened, what's true about motivation, their motivation, what's true about their intention absolutely makes a difference, right? So she goes on to say, this involves thinking the best of people. In other words, when you have the chance, assume the best of other people rather than jumping to harsh conclusions about their character and intentions. Don't let resentment imprison you for life. It will destroy you and your other relationships. When have you been able to have empathy for someone who has hurt you? Ask yourselves, and this is cheesy, but I think it's helpful. Do I want things bitter or better? It's actually not bad. Don't let resentment imprison you for life. It will destroy you and your other relationships. Lewis Smedes wrote, to forgive is to set the prisoner free 
and to discover that the prisoner was you. Makes sense? It's a lot there. But she's giving a very good treatment of just how beneficial and helpful and, uh, and how redemptive forgiveness actually is, not only for other people, but for your own heart. And many of us, if not most of us in here today, are probably right now struggling to forgive someone, right? Probably right now. So let me say this and hear me say this. Lack of forgiveness is corrosive, right? So picture the idea of corroding metal, right? Picture the idea of something being um, taken apart uh, at an atomic level. It's corrosive relationally. If you don't forgive, it will destroy and tear apart relationships with the very people that you love, right? It'll, it'll corrode those relationships. And as Hoy points out in her article, it's corrosive to your own heart. If you allow unforgiveness and bitterness to take root, they will actually make you less human, right? Does that make sense? Forgiveness is massively, massively important. But again, Peter's question still resonates with us, which is how much should we forgive? And our next point is this. Jesus' answer to Peter is that our forgiveness should be limitless. It should be without limits. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And so Peter, again, wanted to know how much he was required to forgive. His question was, how many times must I forgive someone? And his guess of seven was pretty decent, but again, it fell short of what the requirement was. Jesus' response reveals just how short it fell when he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And throughout Scripture, the number seven indicates perfection or completeness. And so 70 times seven or 77, depending on how the Greek is translated, would essentially indicate a limitless amount. Some commentators think that Jesus may have taken the number 77 from Genesis chapter 4, 24, where there's a story about Lamech, who is uh, a very broken uh, and, and frankly evil man. And he promises to avenge himself on those who have injured him 77 times over. Jesus then, if he is hearkening back to the story of Lamech in the Old Testament, would be saying that in contrast to Lamech's limitless spirit of vengeance, that Christians should be constrained by a similarly limitless spirit of forgiveness. And the reason it should be limitless is because of this story he's getting ready to tell us. The third point is that our ability to forgive should correlate to our experience of God's mercy to us, right? So let's look at verses 23 through 30. We're jumping into the the main chunk of the text. Verse 23 begins, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Okay, that's a lot. The talent was the large, and the technical, uh, actual, the the Greek there is a word talent. And he says the talent was the largest unit of currency, it measured about 75 pounds. It's usually of silver or of gold. And so 10,000 talents of gold would sound to us, to our ears today, like a billion dollars, literally. So it sounds like a billion dollars. And uh, the idea being that the man owed the king a debt that was so much that it was essentially unpayable, right? You couldn't even begin to repay a billion dollars. None of us could. Verse 25 Since he was not able to pay, the master, the king, ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 
And so it's shocking to us in the 21st century that the king had the ability to sell not only the man but his wife and children into slavery. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, this wouldn't, wouldn't have actually been shocking at all. The readers would have understood that this was the king's right to do so. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So it's interesting to see the man's response. He says, be patient with me, as if he could pay back a billion dollars. Like, I just need a little more time. He wasn't asking, actually, for the debt to be forgiven. The the servant wasn't. Only that he'd be given more time so he might try to pay it back. The king, however, is more merciful than the servant expects or knows or understands. He doesn't give him more time. He cancels the astronomical debt in full, right? He took pity, it says, upon his servant. In other words, the king put himself in the man's shoes in order to experience his pain and his suffering and his stress and his worry. In other words, he had compassion upon him. And then after doing so, he canceled the debt and let him go, right? Now, if this was the end of this parable, we'd go, yeah, all right. I get it. All right. I've been forgiven a lot. And, and, and we'll get to the rest of the parable in a minute. And, and actually, it would be okay to stop here and to think about how much we have been forgiven of. In fact, C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. In other words, to be a Christian, in other words, the fundamental nature of being a Christian is that we offer forgiveness to people who've sinned against us in un forgivable, seemingly unforgivable, inexcusable ways because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. But that's not where the parable ends. It continues. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, that forgiven servant, right? He should be, you know, cloud nine. When he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, or again, literally in the Greek, a hundred denarii, which would have been four months salary, and so if you make $45,000 a year, you're talking about about $15,000. And so what the man owed this other servant was not an insignificant amount, amount at all, but it's dwarfed by the billions that the original man had just been forgiven. So let me pause here for a moment and address this. Now let me acknowledge that some of us, some of you, have been sinned against in ways that are really incomprehensible like the the depth of the malevolence and the evil that's been uh, committed against you is something that probably very few other people can actually comprehend or understand. So let me acknowledge that very quickly. And frequently you've been wounded or hurt in those ways by the very people who were supposed to protect you and to care for you. You were abandoned. You were maybe unchosen. You were neglected. And I don't think for a moment that Jesus' intention here is to minimize your hurt or your wounds or the ways in which you've been sinned against. In fact, Jesus came to forgive, but he also came to enter into that very pain and woundedness and hurt and abandonment and rejection with you, right? He cared enough to enter into your suffering, to enter into your hurt. He was abandoned. He was betrayed in order to know your pain and to forgive your sins, but also in order to forgive those who have sinned against you. And so it's my prayer today that as you look at Jesus, your heart will be changed and that 
though it may seem impossible right now, that you'll be able to forgive. Let's go back to the story. He, this servant who had been forgiven a billion dollars, grabbed him, the the guy that owed him $15,000, and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And so it's not simply that the forgiven man didn't extend forgiveness to his fellow servant. He was violent with him, right? He grabbed him. He choked him. He was demanding. He was so mad that he wanted to hurt him. He wanted to have vengeance. And though the master had entered into his situation and showed him compassion and mercy, this servant, the unmerciful servant, refused and held the man accountable for his sin, for his offense, for his debt, until the other man made things right. right? So often, we think that in order to be able to forgive someone who's offended us or hurt us or sinned against us, that they have to understand us completely. Right? That's the price of forgiveness. They've got to hear us right, completely. That's the price of forgiveness. They've got to empathize fully with us in our pain. We think they have to completely apologize for each, each aspect of the ways in which we've been wounded. We think that to forgive, the offending party must, be, must completely understand the way in which their action or maybe their inaction cost us. All those things are actually good things. They're actually things to long for in so much as they are possible But the truth is, those things, being understood, being heard, having somebody enter in and understand how they've cost you, those are not the basis for your forgiveness towards those people. Okay, just hear me say that. This is not a complete um, teaching on the idea of forgiveness, but those things, they are good, right? Those are valid desires, but those are not the basis for you to forgive someone else. The basis for forgiveness here is simply the mercy of, that has been shown to you by God in Jesus. That's the basis for the forgiveness that you're to offer to others. And it's the basis for the forgiveness that you're supposed to offer yourself as well. And when our eyes are focused on the depth of our own sin and the mercy that God has shown us, then it becomes possible, sometimes little by little, to take our eyes off of the sins of other people And once we experience the magnitude and the depth of God's mercy, then our hearts are changed. And that's actually the answer to Peter's question. I'm going to read verses 33 through 35 and listen to how Jesus ends this parable. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart. Forgiveness is not about keeping score. It's not about keeping track. That's what Peter was sort of getting at there. Rather, forgiveness flows from a heart that has been softened and moved by the mercy of God and the forgiveness that he has offered us. Right, that's, that's where everything is supposed to flow. It's supposed to flow from a changed heart. Right, our first inclination, because we've been shown mercy and grace and forgiveness, should be to want to offer that same mercy and grace and forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. 
This morning, as you look around the room, you see tables. On the left hand, my left-hand side of the room, there's tables with bread and grape juice. On the right-hand side of the room, there are tables with bread and with wine. And these tables are actually something that we call the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. But fundamentally, what these tables remind us of is that we've been forgiven by God, that billion-dollar debt, right? And that because we've been forgiven because of the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus, then, and hear me on this, that if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, and if you trust in the sacrifice of his son, then listen to me, God is no longer angry with you, right? No more wrath, right? Not only is he no longer angry with you, but you're no longer guilty, right? He looks at you and he sees you as completely innocent, right? He sees you as completely perfect because when he looks at you, he doesn't see your record, he sees Christ's record on your behalf. And so you are forgiven, you are innocent, you are declared righteous, and you're adopted into the family of God. And part of what this meal represents is the family table where God says, you are welcome to sit down at the table and fellowship with me and fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship with Jesus. And you're welcome at this table, not because you were so great or because you weren't too bad, but you're welcome at this table because of my son Jesus, because he did everything that was required in order to bring you back into a relationship with me. So it is my prayer today that as we take this bread and we take this wine, that it would be God's voice to each of you that you are forgiven for every sin, past, present, and future. Again, because of the sacrifice, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus, for you. Now, one qualification. This meal is for people who have been invited to sit at the table of God with God. It isn't for those people yet who haven't come to that point of trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And so if that's you today, I would simply ask that you sit back and you ponder the forgiveness that can be yours through Jesus. I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to then ask that you take a moment, pray, take all the time you need. And then when you're ready, do you get up, do you tear off a piece of bread, do you dip it in the wine, and that you hear God's voice saying to you that you are forgiven. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, the magnanimous, astronomical, wonderful forgiveness that is actually ours. And so, Father, I pray that we would understand um, and experience the depth of that forgiveness so much so that we wouldn't just believe it in our heads, but that we would experience that forgiveness in our hearts and that it might truly change the way that we view you and that we would see you as our good father and your son Jesus as our hero and our savior. But I pray, Father, that it would also enable us to see others um, through that same lens, Father, that we would see the others that have sinned against us and that our hearts toward them would be hearts that desire forgiveness and desire restoration. And then, Father, finally, I pray that your voice would speak to us in this meal today, 
and that in this meal you would declare to us that we are your children, your daughters, your sons, and that we're forgiven and that you love us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.